Alrighty, let's jump into it. If we could turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 30, verse 17. We did actually go through the all of Exodus chapter 30 last week. But I just want to focus in on the bronze laver. And it talks about the Word of God. I just want to talk about the Word of God a little bit more and how we read it. I've, I read this... Um, bit of an insight and it just kind of uh, it really encouraged me so I thought I'd share it with you. Father I thank you for your great grace and your mercy. I thank you for the way that you provided us with your truth Lord uh, and your spirit to um, help us to understand that truth and Lord without your spirit to reveal your truth and the word is, is dead but um, when your spirit is there it's alive and it nourishes us, it refreshes us, it, it grows us, it changes us and we um, it empowers us. So we just, yeah, thank you for that, Father. And um, guide us today as we um, study your word. Help us to, yeah, pray you under Holy Spirit. Just give us wisdom in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm just going to read um, Exodus chapter 30, verses 17 to 21, and then uh, just talk about an application of those verses. So it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, you shall also make a laver of bronze with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. For Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. If you go to the um, tabernacle and you walk in the first door, the first big curtain, if you want to call it that, um, opening, what you'll see is the big bronze altar where the burnt offerings were offered. So... We're not talking about that. The, the, the bronze laver is after the bronze altar of burnt offering. So you walk in there and you see this big, square, quite tall brass altar and it's a place of sacrifice. So that's where regeneration happens or salvation or born again, uh, whatever term you want to put to it. It's where the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and we, we become a child of God. It's the sacrifice of Jesus being applied to our lives where our sins are forgiven. When we go beyond that, when we're heading towards the actual tent, we're in the courtyard now, uh, we're heading towards the tent where the um, had the two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. In between there is this bronze laver. It's just like a round thing and it's got it's like a bowl with water in it. We go there where the priests were to wash their hands and feet for cleansing, reinvigoration, and refreshment. So where do we get refreshed in the priestly ministry that we're called to? Well, it's at the brass laver filled with water. It's at the place of renewal, restoration, and revival. It's in the pages of the Word, the Bible, which is God's love letter to us. Now, it's interesting. All the other bits and pieces, all the other bits of furniture, they had a measurement associated with it, so you know how big it was. Well, this has no dimensions. There are no dimensions for the bronze laver. Why? Well, 
Maybe the Lord is saying to us, the refreshment and reinvigoration you receive being in my word is limitless. It's beyond measure. It's inexhaustible. You can't put a measure on it. Secondly, the other thing that makes this labor different is that it has no covering. All the other pieces of furniture had a covering on it. So when they moved around, they had a cover on it to, to protect it. Like the Ark of the Covenant, the golden candlestick, etc. But this had no covering. And it's kind of like the Lord is saying that the word, his word, is always available. It's never concealed. It's never closed off to us. So it's just interesting, that difference. Now, what does the Bible say about the Bible? <clears throat> well, you go to Psalm 119, and I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to just uh, pull a few nuggets out of it. What does Psalm 119 talk about? It's one thing. It's the benefits and blessings of being in the Word. Okay? That's it. It's the benefits and blessings of being in the Word. Okay, let's look at some of those blessings. Verse 1 says in Psalm 119 that the person who obeys the Word will be blessed or happy. Verse 7 tells us that the person who is in the Word will be a person who worships. Verse 9 says that the person who takes heed to the Word will be clean. Verse 24 tells us that the Word is a delight. Verse 50, that it is a comfort. Verse 72 declares that the Word to be more precious than gold and silver. Verse 99, that it brings understanding. And verse 105, that it sheds light. Now, that's just a few verses. If you want to dig into that, there's a whole lot more there. So most of us know these things. Most of us agree that when we study the Word, countless blessings are ours. Okay, so here's a mystery. If we know that being in the Word is a good place to be, why aren't we in the Word a whole lot more than we are? Why aren't we diving into the labor continually? And I think there's a reason for that, and it's because the laver is made of brass. What's brass represent? Yeah, purification or, or judgment, okay? When in Exodus 38, the, uh, when they start constructing, um, the women donated their brass-looking glasses or, or mirrors. So they had these mirrors of brass, and they gave them for the construction of the tabernacle, and I believe that they were used in this brass labor. So you basically look in it, and you can see your reflection. In James, he likens the word to a mirror, and you see that in James one twenty three to 25. And this is the problem sometimes for us. When we open the word, we see our reflection, and it's not what it should be. We have this standard up here, and, and we're down here in a practical sense. We see our failures and our flaws, our sins and our shortcomings. And although we understand that the Word brings benefits to those who study it, sometimes we become exhausted by trying to live up to its standard. So the laver is made of brass, and it's a brass which judges us so decisively that although we know what we see in the Word is true, right, good, and the way it ought to be, sometimes it gets to the point where we just don't know if we can take another sermon, another lesson, another study, because we're so far from it. But wait, the laver just wasn't this brass mirror thing. It was filled with water. Without water, all you see, so to speak, is your reflection of your flaws and failures. But when you add the water, the laver becomes refreshing, renewing, and reinvigorating. Jesus said, all you who thirst, come to me. 
And he also said, Out of your innermost being shall gush torrents of living water. So it's John 7, 37 and 38. Here's a little story I want to read to you. It says, I was at a point some years ago, and I, I can relate to this story as well. I was at a point some years ago where I was reading through the Gospels as I love to do, but I was weary. I came to the portion where Jesus touched the leper and the leper was cleansed, and I heard myself saying, I need to be helping people physically just like Jesus did. Then I turned the page and saw how Jesus touched the ears and tongue of a man unable to hear and speak. And I found myself thinking, I need to find some dumb dumb guys, meaning can't speak, and help them just like Jesus did. Then I turned the page and read how Jesus had compassion on the multitudes and fed 5,000 hungry men. And I said, that's the way it ought to be. I need to get involved in World Vision or Compassion International and help feed hungry people. Then I saw Jesus blessing kids and thought, I need to work with kids. Then I saw how Jesus calmed the storm in the Sea of Galilee and was reminded of those I knew whose marriages were on the rocks, whose lives were in turmoil and decided that I should do what I could to see those storms stilled. Then I read how Jesus defended the woman caught in adultery and I felt that I should stand up for those who are socially or politically oppressed. At the end, I was exhausted. Finally, I said, I just can't read another chapter. I can't do it, Jesus. I'm impressed with you. I see the rightness of what you do, but I can't do all the things you did. Anyone been that place? Where you know what you should do, but it's just, whoa, it's overwhelming. Okay. And it was at that moment, the story continues, and it was at that moment that the Lord whispered in my heart, exactly, you have yourself in the wrong position. I'm the one who touches a leper. I'm the one who blesses the children. I'm the one who feeds the hungry. I'm the one who makes the dumb to speak. I'm the one who stands up for the woman. I'm the one who calms the storm. It's not you, it's me. I get it, I said. You're the Christ, I'm not. That makes me the leper. I'm being eaten away every day by my sin and carnality, yet every day you come my way and touch and restore my life. I'm the dumb guy. I say things I shouldn't say. I put my foot in my mouth, yet you're there to forgive me and straighten me out. I'm the deaf man, but you never give up on me. You open my ears, you renew my thoughts. I'm the little child who needs a touch from you. I'm the hungry one, and only you can meet the need within me. I'm the one caught in adultery, and you're there to forgive me. I'm the one caught in the storm, and you're the one who walks out to rescue me. I've been reading my Bible all wrong. No wonder I've been so weary, so reluctant to keep reading. I've placed myself in the wrong role. You're the Christ. I'm the leper. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your patience. Where would I be without you? And when the Lord adjusted my thinking... Scripture reading became a total joy once again. So I just enjoyed listening or reading that story. And we can read the Bible as a set of as, as a, um, expectations and becomes an obligation. And we feel condemned when we can't live up to those things. But when we realize that we are the one with the needs and Jesus is the one who meets those needs, then we, as we read the Bible, we see all these situations where Jesus is meeting needs, and we realize Jesus is meeting my needs. Jesus is there to help me. Jesus is there to comfort me. 
Now, where did the water for the laver come from as the children of Israel wandered through the wilderness? Did they dig for it? Did it rain? No. It came from the rock that traveled with them, the rock that was smitten. The rock that 1 Corinthians 10.4 identifies as Jesus. So what happened to Christ when he was smitten or crucified on the cross with a spear? Or crucified and then um, pierced with a spear? So out of his side flowed blood and water. It's redemption and refreshment. If we dive into the laver of the word without the water of the spirit, the water of the word made flesh, will crash into the brass of judgment. So when you read the Bible, ask the Holy Spirit to give you understanding and and remind yourself that Jesus is your Savior. He came to save you, not to condemn you. So get back to the laver, the Word of God, and dive in and just make sure the water's there. Make sure it's filled with the water of the Spirit, the water of the Word, the water of the Rock of Ages. So now into chapter 31. This is a chapter that talks about God calling people to do the work to build the tabernacle. So we'll just um, we'll jump in. Chapter 31. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name Bezael, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work all manner of workmanship. Last week, in chapter 30, we saw the anointing oil for priestly ministry. Here in chapter 31, we move from priestly ministry to practical ministry. And again, we see an anointing and a gifting of the Holy Spirit. So, Bezeel was anointed, filled with the Spirit of God, in order that he might accomplish practical work in the tabernacle. He is the foreman. He's the guy in charge of overseeing all the construction of the tabernacle and its furnishings and the the garments that the priest would wear. So what it tells us is that we need the, the anointing of the Spirit even for the practical things that we do. What gifts or ability has God given you? Well, ask God to anoint them and he will use you as he used Bezazil. Finding a ministry is not is actually a lot easier than people think. It's whatever comes supernaturally natural to you. Does that make sense? Supernaturally natural to you. All right? I believe that um, Bezazil was already skilled with his hands. He already was good with those things. God had already put that into him as a natural talent. But now he's empowered to do it for God's glory. So, you know, it could be music, it could be your carpentry skills, your mechanics, it could be whatever it is. But when God gets a hold of it, when God anoints you, then you can use it for God's glory. Oh, I meant to read this at the very start. Okay, little parenthesis here. Last week we also talked about prayer, and I found this quote. It's a really awesome quote. So, sorry to interrupt what I was saying. I'm interrupting myself here. So, it says, Prayer is the language of the poor. The self-sufficient don't need to pray. The self-satisfied don't want to pray. The self-righteous can't pray. The only ones who can pray are those who realize that we need a power outside of ourselves. So, prayer is the language of the poor. Remember Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit? 
Okay? They're self-sufficient, don't need to pray. They're self-satisfied, don't want to pray. They're self-righteous, can't pray. The only ones who can pray are those who realize that we need a power outside of ourselves. And the guys who wrote that quote, oh, he's at the top of my page now. I don't want to lose my spot. So <laughs> if you want it after, I'll give it to you. So back to where we are now, talking about being anointed for God's work. 2 Timothy 2.15 in the New Living, work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. So we need God's anointing on our marriages, our witnessing, raising our kids, whatever we do. Along with asking the Holy Spirit or God to give us the Holy Spirit for power and for wisdom, we also need to find out what the Bible says about what we are doing. How am I supposed to love my wife? How am I supposed to raise my kids? How am I supposed to relate to people outside in the world? You know, all these things. And then the Holy Spirit can bring to remembrance the truth of God's word and guide us. All right, verse 6 in chapter 31. And I, indeed I, I like that, and I, indeed I, that's like God saying, I did this, yes, it was me, um, have appointed with him a Holiab, don't you love these names? Um, the son of, oh boy, uh, his as much of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, and it goes on. God has given us, or when God gives us a command to do something, he also gives us the ability to do it. So God empowered, energized, anointed carpenters, tailors, perfumers to do this work, his work. Now, Bezaziel was the foreman, but Aholiab was the assistant, along with the others who served by his side. You know, in this world, everyone wants to be the number one. Everyone wants to be in the top job. You know, the CEO of the, of the corporation type thing. A little story. When asked what was the hardest position in the orchestra to fill, a famous conductor said, first chair, second violin. I can find all kinds of people who want to play first violin, but it's hard to find someone who wants to be excellent at second violin, who wants to play harmony. That's what second violin does, it plays harmony. So it's, it supports the first role. Human tendency is to want to be mediocre at first violin rather than to excel at second. So this guy, Aholiab, he was told he would be the assistant to Bezaziel, and he was successful. There's lots of people who God has called just to be a support person. And if we accept our role as support people, then it, it's, it's very fulfilling. And here's a, um, a quote from a book. It's called The Peter Principle. It says, All too often the problem in corporate America is that people are promoted to the level of incompetence. I'll explain that now. That is, a man who does well in his position is promoted to the next level. After doing well there, he's moved to level three. Succeeding there, he's moved to level four. And he keeps being promoted until toward the top, he's over his head. <laughs> he was good going up the ladder, but he went one step too far. And when the corporation downsizes, guess who gets the axe? So God doesn't want that for us. 
He wants us to fit into the place he's custom designed for us. He's given each person a place. Notice that scripture started with, and I, even I, have appointed him, Aholiab. Okay? So God has given us a place. We need to be satisfied, content with where God puts us in the body of Christ. We need to take steps of faith. We need to move forward. But we must avoid the foolishness or the folly of taking one step too many if God does put you in a number one spot, he will give you the grace and the ability to handle it. But if God doesn't want you there and he wants you in the number two position, rejoice and excel on that. And it could be in your job or ministry. You could be anywhere, but just be happy where God has put you. Don't seek to be promoted all the time because it could lead you to be in a place where you're actually incompetent and you don't know what you're doing. All right, verse 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from from among his people." Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh he rested and was refreshed. So verse 17, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days, etc. So why did God put this thing about the Sabbath in the middle of this construction chapter? The way I see it is um, there's a tendency in our lives in times of construction, in times of, you know, things to do, in busyness. Okay, we've got a plan. We've got the plan, the team. Let's roll up our sleeves and get going. Let's let's do what God wants us to do. But God doesn't want the time of construction to become a time of distraction where you forget to rest in Jesus, to worship Jesus and to spend time with him. So think of Mary and Martha. What did Jesus say to them? Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It's on the screen. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house and she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, You're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. So what is the good part? Well, to sit at the feet of Jesus and abide in his love. That's just a sweet spot. That's the place he wants us to be. Not distracted with busyness. and There's always going to be things to do. So he wants us to have personal, undistracted, quality time with him. 
Now, I've learned, and I suppose you guys have too, that there's always more work to do than we have time to complete. Is that true? All right. So be wise, first step, be wise and get rid of anything that isn't of eternal value and prioritize anything that is. Ask wisdom to know what is God's will for you and what isn't. And remember that there are many good and noble things that we can be doing, but they may not be God's will for us personally or as a church. So we need to pray for wisdom and guidance there. Now, it's the six days. A lot of people have a problem with God creating in six days. Well, why would an omnipotent God who could speak creation into existence take a whole six days? Some of the early church fathers therefore believed that God created everything in only one day or in an instant. To counter this teaching, Martin Luther wrote, When Moses writes that God created heaven and earth and whatever is in them in six days, then let this period continue to have been six days and do not venture to devise any comment according to which six days were one day. But if you cannot understand how this could have been done in six days, then grant the Holy Spirit the honor of being more learned than you are. (laughs) For you are to deal with Scripture in such a way that you bear in mind that God himself says what is written. But since God is speaking, it is not fitting for you to wantonly turn his word in the direction you wish it to go. That's an awesome quote from um, Luther there. Now today, the heresy continues, but people want to extend the time period. Back then they wanted to shorten it. Now they want to extend it. So I've got a quote here from Dr. James Barr, professor of Hebrew at Oxford University. He's probably not there anymore. He said, So far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writer or writers of Genesis 1-11 to intended to convey to their readers the idea that A. Creation took place in a series of six days which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience. B. The figures contained in the Genesis genealogies provided by a simple addition, a chronology from the beginning of the world up to later stages in the biblical history. And C. Noah's flood was understood to be worldwide and extinguished all human and animal life except for those in the ark. So I just wanted to comment on that seven days and put a little creationist plug in there. Because it's important that we don't change the word of God to suit our own beliefs. And that's basically what people are doing. Now, I just want to come back to um, the Sabbath. And it's a sign between the children of Israel and God. It's holy to them, not to us. Okay. What I want to do is just, um, I'm going to the Evidence Bible now. And there's a really good um, summary here of um, the arguments used for and the answers against. Um, Sabbath keeping, people who go to church on Saturdays and the arguments they use for that and the scriptural reasons why or answers to those arguments. So you can have an answer for those who ask, as the New Testament says. This is from Ray Comfort. Some today insist that Christians must keep the Sabbath day, that those who worship on the first day of the week, Sunday, are in great error. They reason that sun hyphen day, comes from the pagan worship of the sun god, that Jesus and Paul kept the Sabbath day as an example for us to follow, 
and that the Roman Catholic Church is responsible for the change in the day of worship. Those who continue to worship on Sunday will receive the mark of the beast. So that's a summary of the um, their arguments. The Sunday is a pagan worship of the sun god. Jesus and Paul kept the Sabbath as an example for us to follow. The Roman Catholic Church is responsible for the change of day. So he says, let's briefly look at these arguments. First, nowhere does the fourth commandment say that Christians are to worship on the Sabbath. It commands that we rest on that day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your, all your work, and the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, etc. Okay. Sabbath keepers worship on Saturday. This is an answer to the um, the Sunday pagan thing. All right. Sabbath keepers worship on Saturday. However, the word Saturday hyphen day comes from the Latin for Saturn's day. <laughs> it's also a pagan day of worship for the planet Saturn, which is astrology. If a Christian's salvation depends upon his keeping a certain day, surely God would have told us. Acts chapter 15, the apostles got together to discuss the law, keeping the law, what parts of the law do we need to keep, and what do they say? All you need to do is abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If it's true that those who continue to worship on Sunday will receive the mark of the beast, then back in Acts chapter 15, God could have, through his Holy Spirit, made it clear to millions of Christians to avoid damnation and just say, keep the Sabbath, keep the law. But this was that's not what it was said. There isn't even one command in the New Testament for Christians to keep the Sabbath holy. In fact, we are told not to let others judge us regarding Sabbaths. That's in Colossians 2.16. And that man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. Mark 2.27. The Sabbath was given as a sign to Israel. And we just read that. Exodus 31. So nowhere is it given as a sign to the church. Now, thousands of years have come and gone. Because what? The Sabbath is still a sign for the people of Israel. They still worship on Saturday. Another argument. The apostles came together on the first day of the week to break bread, Acts 20, verse 7. The collection was taken on the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. That's a Sunday, first day of the week. So when do Sabbath keepers gather together to break bread or take up the collection? It is not on the same day as the early church. So they're different to the early church. They tell us that the Roman Catholic Church changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, but what has that got to do with the disciples keeping the first day of the week? Worshipping and taking up collections on the first day of the week. That was the Roman Catholic Church in the early centuries, not the church in the book of Acts. Romans 14, 5-10 tells us that one man esteems one day of the week above another, another esteems every day alike. Then scripture tells us that everyone should be fully persuaded in his own mind. We are not to judge each other regarding the day on which we worship. That's really important. So we don't judge those who worship Saturdays and they shouldn't be judging us. We should be fully convinced in our own mind. Now what about Jesus keeping the Sabbath? You know, that's a fairly strong argument, isn't it? Well, why did Jesus keep the Sabbath? Well, he had to. He had to keep the whole law to be a perfect perfect sacrifice. Jesus was the only person who did keep the whole law. 
the Bible makes it clear that the law has been satisfied in Christ. Now, the reason Paul went to the synagogue each Sabbath wasn't to keep the law, because that would have been contrary to everything he taught about being saved by grace alone. It was so he could preach the gospel to the Jews, as evident in the book of Acts. So Paul wanted to evangelize the Jews. What's the best place of evangelizing people? You go where they meet. You go where they meet and when they meet. What's the point in going to the synagogue on a Sunday when there's no one there? So that meant he went to where they gathered, or it says, um, to the Jew he became a Jew that he might win the Jews, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 and 20. That meant he went to where they gathered on the day they gathered, not to keep the law, but to preach the gospel to them. He also went to anywhere people were gathered at any time, marketplace, riverbank, etc., to preach the gospel. That's just a little um, summary of the, um, the, the, the main arguments used for keeping a Sabbath. And to finish with a quote from Charles Spurgeon, I am no preacher of the old legal Sabbath. I am a preacher of the gospel. The Sabbath of the Jew is to him task. The Lord's day of the Christian, the first day of the week, is to him a joy, a day of rest, of peace, and of thanksgiving. And if you Christian men can drive away all distractions so that you can rest, really rest today, it will be good for your bodies, good for your souls, good mentally, good spiritually, good temporally, and good eternally. So, the principle of having a rest once a week is really important. That's why I use that quote. We'll be blessed if we have a rest once a week. We have a day of rest. It doesn't matter which day, but we have a day of rest. Good for every part of our body, soul, and spirit. Okay, verse 18. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So I've seen that in the movies, and you know, imagine God writing in stone with his finger. I would love to see that. On the movies it's all kind of explosive and, and all that kind of stuff, and special effects, but here, Moses is given the Ten Commandments written with the finger of God's own hand. Now, the fingers of God also were used in creation. Psalm 8 verse 3. We also see the finger of God is evident in condemnation uh, when with Pharaoh, for example, Exodus chapter 8 verse 19. They recognize the power of his judgment. But also the fingers of God were employed in compassion. You remember Jesus' fingers? He put them on the man's ears so he could hear the deaf man, Mark 7.33. And I love this one in John 8. Verse 6, and writing on the ground before woman about to be set free. That's the finger of God liberating us from our sin, liberating us to be free. So, and just to remind you that the last few weeks we've been looking at all these instructions for the tabernacle, for the altar and anointing oil and the priestly garments. Moses has been up on the mountain. He's been gone from the people. So, uh, I just read Exodus, um, it's on the screen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and, and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So back in Exodus twenty four twelve, that's when Moses went up. And now in Exodus 31, he's about to come down. So it's just to give you some perspective of what's happening. Now, Ray Comfort says about the law, The law was God's signature. The moral law was personally handwritten by the creator of the universe. Remember, the Ten Commandments are God's moral law. 
This is why we must preach the law to a lawless and hell-bound world. This was God's mind and will for humanity. He wrote the law on the heart of Adam and his descendants, and he wrote the law in stone with his finger to confirm that this was his character and unchanging nature. So we have our conscience that God has put his law on. He, he, we know right from wrong. But without the written law, we can get pretty messed up. So Charles Spurgeon says, It is worthy of grateful note that this gospel blessing reaches down to the exact spot where the Lord leaves us when it has done for us the very best within its power or design. The most the law can accomplish for our fallen humanity is to lay bare our spiritual poverty and convince us of it. It cannot by any possibility enrich a man. Its greatest service is to tear away from him his fancied wealth of self-righteousness, show him his overwhelming indebtedness to God, and bow him to the earth in self-despair. He continues, Like Moses, it leads away from, from Goshen or Egypt, the world, conducts into the wilderness, and brings us to the verge of an impassable stream, meaning the Jordan River. But it can do no more. Joshua Jesus is needed to divide the Jordan and conduct or lead into the promised land. It leaves us naked, poor, and miserable. At this point, Jesus descends. His full line of blessing comes upon the verge of destruction, rescues the lost, and enriches the poor. The gospel is as full as it is free. So the law brings us to that place. We realize our need for Christ, but it can't take us over the Jordan. That's when Moses died, remember? Just before they crossed, and Joshua took them across. So the law takes us to a certain point, it makes us realize our need for a saviour, and then we need the gospel from there on. Jesus takes over, so to speak. So Galatians three twenty four and 25 says, Let me put it another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. We're not under the law, we're under grace. Remember that. So, what is the function of the law? Now, some people say that you shouldn't use the law when evangelizing because it produces legalism. Is that true? Well, let's have a look. When the law is used to show a sinner that he is exceedingly sinful, that nothing can commend him to God, he clings to the cross, knowing that he is saved by grace and grace alone. This knowledge gives the Christian the understanding that even after a lifetime of good works, fasting, praying, seeking the lost, etc., his works don't commend him to God. He is still saved by grace and grace alone because the law has told him that he's not perfect. He's broken the law. He's guilty. However, when the law isn't used before the cross, like the gospel message of the talking about Jesus dying on the cross, and a sinner simply makes a decision for Christ, he comes with a lack of understanding about the true nature of sin. After his commitment, he thinks that his good works, his fasting, praying, evangelism, etc., commend him to God. He is the one who thinks that what he eats, what he wears, and what he does become relevant to his salvation. He is the one who is liable to say, Do not touch 
do not taste, and do not handle the one who becomes legalistic. So using the law in evangelism before the cross liberates a new convert from legalism. Now I've got a story for you. It's the story of the lighthouse keeper. Illustrates this point. A lighthouse keeper gained a reputation as being a very kind man. He would give free fuel to ships that miscalculated the amount of fuel needed to reach their destination port. One night during a storm, lightning struck his lighthouse and put out his light. He immediately turned on his generator, but it soon ran out of fuel. (laughs) He had given all his reserves to passing ships. During that dark night, a ship struck the rocks and many lives were lost. At his trial, the judge knew of the lighthouse keeper's reputation as a kind man and wept as he gave sentence. He accused the lighthouse keeper of neglecting this primary responsibility to keep the light shining. That was his primary responsibility, to keep the light shining. So we can, as a church, can get, so often get caught up in legitimate acts of kindness, you know, standing up for political righteousness, feeding the hungry. But our primary task is to warn sinners of danger. We are a lighthouse. We need to warn sinners of danger, that they're sinners, and their sin is going to cost them their life for eternity, eternity separated from God. We need to keep the light of the gospel shining so sinners can avoid the jagged-edged rocks of wrath and escape being eternally damned. And you might have heard this anonymous poem before. It says, My friend, I stand in judgment now and feel that you are to blame somehow. On earth I walked with you by day and never did you show the way. You knew the Saviour in truth and glory, but never did you tell the story. My knowledge then was very dim. You could have led me safe to him. Though we lived together here on earth, you never told me of the second birth. And now I stand before eternal hell. Because of heaven's glory, you did not tell. So, remember, all you have to do is tell them just once. All right? You can watch a movie with them, like The Atheist Delusion or something like that. You know, it doesn't have to be Ray Comfort's one, but anything that's got the full gospel. Um, watch a YouTube clip together, like the um, Billy Graham ones that um, James uses in that. Write a letter is another way, okay? I. <laughs> To my shame, I have not shared the gospel with quite a few members of my family. And for the last two years, I've been intending <laughs> to share the to write a letter with a really brief version of my testimony, but with the gospel, with the law. You know, one day I realized that I was a sinner, that I had broken God's laws. You know, I realized that I had lied, which makes me a liar, and I'd stolen, which makes me a thief. I'd lasted, which makes me an adulterer, because the Bible says that anyone who looks at a woman lust is an adulterer in heart. And and basically, you go through the steps of um, sharing the gospel in that in your testimony. And basically, it's just a, a, a gospel presentation with a bit of your story added to it. And um, I'm going to give it as a Christmas card. So a Christmas card with a letter inside. It's going to be the same letter. I just put a different name on top. Make it nice and easy. I don't have time to do individual ones. So, and um, I would have told my my family the the gospel of salvation. So pray for me for boldness because, um, as I said, the last two years I've meant to do it, but I haven't, so I really want to do it this year. I'll finish with a couple of quotes. The only way to turn back darkness is to let the light of the gospel shine. That's Greg Laurie. 
And Franklin Graham said, Each person we meet on a daily basis who does not know Christ is hellbound. That may make some folks bristle, but it's a fact. When we refuse to warn people that their actions and lifestyles have eternal consequences, we're not doing them any favors. If everybody feels good about his or her sin, why would anyone repent? That's all about that last verse in chapter 31. And when he had made an end of speaking with him at Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Testimony. What's it testifying? A testimony testifies of something. It's sin. Okay? This is the message that we have. And we also add to that the message of the cross. Father, thank you for your great love that you have for us. Lord, put in our hearts this... this um, and next week we're going to see it really clearly, this, this love for the loss that Moses had. And I just pray that you help us to grow in our empathy towards others, to realize that, um, Lord, you saved us from eternal damnation in hell because we've broken your law. But now all our sins are forgiven, and there is no condemnation to those who belong to Christ Jesus, who are a part of your family. Lord, we're in Christ. You no longer see our sin. It's gone. And um, even the sins we do now, we're in Christ. It's, we're inside Christ. And Father, you don't see them anymore. You just see us as being perfect in Christ. Help us to, to remember this and to remember that this is, such a, this is the best gift that was ever given. And Lord, to tell other people about it. In Jesus' name, amen.